0: For Scripture reading this evening, we turn again to 1 Corinthians 13. And again, we're going to read the verse previous, verse 31 of chapter 12. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I speak as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. The text we consider tonight is verses 4 through 7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. The text that we are considering together in a few sermons, beloved, is the great teaching of the Holy Spirit that the most excellent way of every member of the church and the church itself is the way of love. That is, the most excellent way of life, the way of conduct and manner of living is the way of love. That's the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul here, in 1 Corinthians 13. We learned last week that this way, this way of love, is the way of life for every single member of the church for one one another. The passage is not speaking about our love for God, although certainly the way in which we live includes love for God. and. It's true that the way of love toward our neighbor in the church is a love that flows out of and is grounded in love for God. If there is no love of God, there can be no love of the neighbor. But that's not what the text is referring to. Nor is it talking about love for the ungodly, wicked neighbor. We are, of course, called elsewhere to love our enemies, to love even the ungodly, wicked neighbor, but that has its own set of rules and application. That's not what's being referred to here. It's love specifically for one's fellow member in the church. And that's evident in that this was the exact problem of the church in Corinth. We also saw last week that love is a grace that's worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has especially three inward characteristics. Three inward characteristics that are found in the heart. It is, first of all, an attitude that regards one's fellow member in the church as precious and wonderful because they are redeemed and bought with the blood of God of Jesus Christ. That in the first place. Secondly, is it, a, it is an attitude of resolve, a firm resolve to do good to that fellow member in the church and not evil. To do them things that are for their welfare and for their advantage, not those things that would harm and disadvantage them. And thirdly, it is an attitude that is a delight and a desire to have fellowship in peace with that fellow member in the church. Those three things were characteristics of love that we examined last week, things that are found in the heart. We saw also last week that the emphasis of the Holy Spirit in His instruction of us was upon the supreme value of love. That love is the most excellent way because of its exceeding, even superior value. And the Apostle brought that to the church at Corinth, And thus the Spirit brings it to the church today because its value is actually greatly minimized. The problem in the church at Corinth was that they valued all sorts of other things, even great and wonderful things, even gifts of the Spirit, more highly. They valued knowledge and the use of knowledge and the use of prophecy or of tongue speaking they place great value on faith and the deeds of faith. And the apostle says that of all those things, the way of love is of much greater value. And even humbles the church, humbles us by pointing out that knowledge and faith and great deeds of faith are all worthless without love. Love, in other words, gives all those things their value. Now, the Holy Spirit turns to the subject of love's activity. It speaks about now not what love is in the heart, but how love acts, how it behaves. And the Spirit is teaching two things. Number one, that faith never, or hope, or love rather, never remains simply an emotion. It is not ever only a feeling, but love is always active. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that the main characteristic of love in its attitude and therefore also in its activity, the main characteristic is that love is selfless. It's selfless. That is, love focuses not upon the subject, not upon the One who is loving, but the lover, the object of that love. And that's brought out in a special way by the text. Carefully, the text does not say that you or I Or someone who loves is kind and envies not. But notice, love itself is kind. That's the Spirit's way of teaching us about the selfless activity of love. Consider with me this evening the most excellent way of love. It's selfless activity. And We notice in the first place that that's fundamental. Fundamental. Then we identify it. And then thirdly, we explain it the fundamental character of love is its selfless activity. To put it another way, selfless activity is an essential fundamental character or characteristic of love. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love Envies not. The Spirit, as I hinted at, makes this plain in a very unique way, as the Spirit always does. From a certain viewpoint, the fact that the Spirit must do it in this unique way is telling, because we would all know, or we should all know, what the Spirit is teaching simply from experience. We should know from experience that love is never merely an emotion or a feeling in the heart, a determination in the heart, but it is essentially an activity and then a selfless one. How do we know that? Well, simply look at even earthly natural love. If you had a young man who was dating a young woman, And he continually told her, I love you. And perhaps even informed her of three great feelings he found in his heart for her that he viewed her as very precious in his sight. And he had a firm resolve to do good unto her and never to hurt her. And he found within his heart a great desire to live with her and peace with her And never to be separate from her. But then, never did anything. Never showed that love. There was no activities of love. No kind words of love. No kind gifts of love. That young lady could rightly conclude that young man is all words. He doesn't really love me he's trying to convince me that he loves me he knows what love is but only as to an emotion that young man knows nothing about what love actually is the same thing would be true in a marriage A husband can assure his wife of his love all that he wants but if there are no deeds and no activity of love the wife will rightly conclude, My husband does not, in fact, love me. Now, in spite of the obvious, in spite of something that we know even from experience, the Holy Spirit sees a need to impress that upon us and do so very wonderfully in the text. And there's a twofold way the Spirit does that. The first is that if you look closely, and as I mentioned last week, the text never actually speaks about the emotional or the inward side of love. The Spirit here is unlike us. We, we talk about love all the time. And when we talk about love, We rarely talk about its activity. We instead like to focus on what's inside the heart. We will tell people and assure people that we love them. And we know that's true. There is an emotional side of heart in the heart that is love. Love resides there. It arises from the heart. And yet, the Spirit simply omits that, overlooks it, doesn't even bring it to our attention, but instead focuses on the one thing that we tend to overlook, which is the activity of love. The passage that we consider simply looks at love from that perspective and says that's what love is. You can, in a very real sense, forget about what's in the heart. Forget about the determination. Don't even talk about the resolve that love ought to be. Love is essentially and fundamentally an activity. And you may know, therefore, that if you have that activity, then there will be, of course, a love in the heart. And this follows, of course, because this is true of God. This is true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not simply an emotion, a spirit in God of love so that God has strong feelings toward Himself. The Father has strong feelings toward the Son, and the Son toward the Father. Or when God focuses love upon us, He doesn't simply have strong feelings and a resolve toward us and a determination. He does. But fundamentally, what's important and significant and without which all the rest would be insignificant, is that God acts in love. And He acts a certain way. And so the Holy Spirit says, take note when I'm teaching about love, how I sort of dismiss all what's in the heart and I bring you right to the activity. In the second place, the Holy Spirit impresses upon us the fundamental character of love by making love itself the subject. That's amazing. It's striking in the passage. Few understand why it is, but it is striking. You cannot miss it. The text does not say, Now, the child of God, the person upon whom God has set His love, because that's what it's speaking about. It does not say, Now you... And I who love are kind. Or must be kind. Or you who love must show these things toward another. Must suffer long. Must not envy. Must bear all things. It doesn't do that. Instead it makes love the subject. Love is kind. Love itself envies not. Now obviously... It's not talking about love as such. The Holy Spirit clearly means that the individual who loves is kind. The member in the church who loves the other member of the church envies not. Envies them not. Is not puffed up. That's the meaning. So why put it this way? And it's the Holy Spirit's wonderful way of saying, don't you see that the fundamental characteristic of the activity of love is that it's absolutely selfless. There's no place for I in it. So that even when it comes to saying, I love, or I am kind, or I, in my love, am kind, the I really should disappear. That when truly one loves their neighbor in the church and fellow member of the church, the I disappears. It's all about the object, it's all about the person who is the object of that love. I hope that you see that tonight. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit is indeed describing the behavior of the child of God who possesses God's own love, as describing the child of God upon whom God has set his own love, and the child of God who therefore loves God. That's what's being described, and that itself is all important. Remember, remember what the Apostle John says about this that one who loves God will love their neighbor. And the person that says they love God but hates their neighbor, their brother, their fellow member in the church, is actually a liar. That we should remember as far as the subject here. The subject here is someone who actually is loved by God and therefore loves God that individual, now the Spirit is saying, will love their neighbor. Now, there's something that the Holy Spirit brings to our attention about this. And actually is pointing out why, again, love is the most excellent way. And that is because he's talking here about a possession, a gift of God. Remember that, we emphasize that. Love is the gift of God. It's just like grace. It is a grace. No one can love their fellow member in the church unless God has first set His love upon them. They love with God's own love. But now, exactly because that's true, love is the possession of every single member of the church. That's not true with other spiritual gifts. All members of the church possess grace, but they possess that grace in different forms. That was true in Corinth. In Corinth, not everyone was given the knowledge and prophecy and the gift of speaking of tongues that the Apostle is talking about. They all did not possess those gifts, nor did they possess those gifts in the same abundance. Well, love isn't like that. Every single member of the church possesses love. And is given love, and therefore is called to exercise that love with the neighbor in the church as its object. In other words, this calling of the Holy Spirit isn't the calling of the elders or of the pastor or of certain uh, superior members in the church, but it's the call of one and old, one and, one and all, young and old, rich and poor. But then also take note of this. The idea of the text is that all of these activities constitute love. There's 15 here, depending on how you count. Some are very closely related to others, may even be considered one. But be that as it may, the idea is that all of these describe the totality of love love as a whole, or love complete. It's not the case that you will have a member who is kind toward other members, but then envies them. Or you have one member who is kind, and then you have to go to another member to find one who envies not. But the idea is that every member of the church will show and exhibit all of these aspects or facets of love, because they describe what love is, not simply part of it, or only one part of it, or how love behaves at one time and not another. The idea even is this, that lack of one, failure to show one, resistance against one, even if one could conceivably, possibly, really not, show all the others, the lack of the one would ruin them all. Consider simply this. Suppose you had an individual who did indeed suffer long and envied not and did not behave itself unseemly, was not easily provoked, but that member toward everyone else was vaunting, boasting, and was puffed up everyone would recognize that all the other things were then just a show. Secondly, we emphasize again what the Spirit brings out, which is that the object is the other members of the congregation. That's how you have to read this. Love suffers long with all the other members in the church love is kind toward the other members of the church love envies not the other members of the church love does not behave itself unseemly before the other members of the church And the idea is again toward all the other members of the congregation even as all the members of the congregation are called to love one another so The one another is all the members of the congregation. One does not get to pick and choose and say, well, I will be kind toward this one, but I won't be kind toward that one. I will try not to envy this one, even though I will be kind to them. And then I am, however, going to act unseemly toward them. The idea is, to behave with all this behavior toward all the other members without exception and without regard to circumstances or what they have done to you. Underlying this whole passage is the notion that the Holy Spirit calls us to this exactly because we will indeed sin against one another. The Holy Spirit is not ignorant of the fact that the children of God that He calls to love and to love other children of God are all sinners. That is, they all at one time or another in their life manifest hatred because that's what sin is. Sin is to hate God and to hate the neighbor. And therefore, the idea is The Holy Spirit is not simply calling us according to the law of God. He's not simply repeating the law of God and saying, now, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But love your neighbor when your neighbor doesn't love you back. Love your neighbor when your neighbor sins against you. Love that neighbor who has acted unseemly against you. Love your neighbor who has been unkind to you. That's the idea and that one who has done so as a member of the church. Now that this is a fundamental character of love was evident in the very church that Paul is writing to Corinth. All of their troubles, and you can read them. Go back and read the previous 12 chapters. It's one trouble After another, they had troubles of party spirit. They had troubles when they came together to eat the Lord's Supper. They were suing one another in a court of law. They were boasting and they were proud of their gifts and of their faith and of their knowledge and of their prophecy while others were being shunned. They even failed to discipline a member that they should have disciplined. And all of it, all of it had one source. All of it pointed to one thing, which is they didn't love one another in the congregation. The Holy Spirit, in this way, waiting even till chapter 13 to get to the heart of the matter, is pointing out that these things are fundamental. They're fundamental to the health and the life and the strength of a church. That without the members loving one another, not only are they sinning against God, but they are destroying the church. They are destroying God's body. They are wounding and harming not simply themselves, but the church. And the result is always schism and division and enmity and hatred and fighting. It's fundamental to the life of a child of God. Truly what the Apostle said in the opening verses make that clear. That one who claims to be a child of God and has not love is really a worthless individual. All that they claim to have and all the gifts that they claim to have and all the good things that they claim to do are of absolutely no benefit to that person. They're worthless. Their deeds are worthless. Their presence in the church is worthless. That's how fundamental this is. And one should be able to understand that in the light of this morning's sermon, which set forth the truth that this is why we were created. If you want to know why the Spirit is going through this passage the way He is, the answer to your question is simply, This is why you exist. God set His love upon you. God set His affection upon you. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you for one reason. One reason. So that you might love the others whom God loved. That's simply the meaning of the passage in the light of the truth that we considered this morning. There's one more thing that we should point out, and that is how even more fundamental, more important, and more significant this calling is. How more important it is that we see this is our purpose, our one purpose, when that member of the church we are called to love is someone that we also are in another bond or relationship of love with. If you ask yourself, why especially does the Spirit call me to love you and you to love me and everyone? The answer is because we are united in a bond of love. We are united by one Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God's love. God has set His love upon us. But now that's not the only relationship that you or I may be in. I may be a child who lives in a relationship of love with my parent, or I may be a husband who lives in a relationship of love with my wife. And now you understand it's even doubly more important and fundamental that that individual love their spouse. Because not only are they their spouse, not only are they a parent, not only they are a child, but they are a member of the church. That brings out the horror of the sin when we do not love our spouse, or we do not love our parents. It's doubly wicked, as it were, if we may put it that way. When I, as a husband, abuse my wife, or when I, as a child, rebel against my parent, or when I, as a parent, discipline my children in an unseemly way, then not only am I not loving them, as... Someone whom I ought to love more than anyone else because they're my closest neighbor, but they are a member of the church. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul, or Peter rather, when dealing with the relationship of husband and wife, turns to the husband, he doesn't simply tell her, tell him to love her, love her, but to dwell with her according to knowledge. And one of the things he brings to the attention of the husband is that they are a joint heir of the kingdom of heaven. How dare you not love that one? For not only are they your wife or your husband, but they are loved by God. That's how fundamental this is, and that's how serious such sins are. And the question we need to ask, is that the way we see them? Not really. How often do we, even when talking about loving the neighbor, immediately skip over our fellow neighbor in the church and we talk about our neighbor next door, our neighbor out there somewhere. We forget about the closest neighbor. We might even present how kind we are and how we behave with regard to the neighbor out there all the while ignoring that we weren't even kind to the schoolmate that we go to school with. You see, beloved, we need to remember and we need to get good at looking at ourselves not as we like to look at ourselves, but as God sees us. How does God look at us and examine us? How does God judge our love one toward another? Now, the Apostle, the Holy Spirit, next identifies this activity. And as I said, the text really lists 15 ways of this way of love, more or less depending on how you combine them, how you look at them. The important thing is really to see that they're divided really into two categories. Verses 5 through 6, are one category, and verse 7 is another category. And the difference between them is in 5 and 6, the object of the love is a person. It's a person, an individual, a fellow member. Whereas in verse 7, the object of the love is things, beareth all things, hopeth all things, believeth all things. We'll explain soon. Let's consider the first group. Love suffers long with a brother or sister in the church. Literally, it means to be of a long heart or a long spirit. The idea is to endure with patience. To stretch out the heart so that one is not easily provoked to another course of action. There is a pressure... There is some sort of harm, some sort of hurt that is exerted and one simply puts up with it. They bear with it. Patience plays big in suffering long. Our word, our phrase really captures it well. To simply put up with. One thinks here of the pictures from nature where you have a mother lion and her her cubs and they're climbing all over her and they're biting her and they're nipping at her fur and they're biting down on her tail and she simply doesn't react. We suffer long with a brother or a sister. We endure and we put up with much Trouble or harm, or even pain, or suffering, or work that is involved in loving them. Love is kind toward a brother or sister. The word kind there has the idea of being in the middle, being mild, neither too hot nor too cold. One does not speak and act and behave in a way that's over the top, or understated. The idea is that one reacts not with their behavior in a way that makes clear how upset you are with their behavior and how you think of it, but then again, is also a behavior that doesn't ignore and look the other way. Think for example of children in the home. Children in the home who are kind, toward one another are not children who, when their brother takes the toy that they want, reacts with fists and fury and crying, but also with regard to the brother is one that's quick to say something nice, to give a compliment. i always found it striking how often, for example, in the schools, Parents and children complain about all the unkind things that are said, all the bullying words that are said, and and I have no doubt that that goes on. We know how cruel children can be rather than being kind. They have a way of excluding people from their fellowship deliberately, never missing an opportunity to say something that they know will hurt and they will harm. That's not the only expression of lack of kindness. Even if one could eliminate all such unkind speech, there would still be a lack of kindness if there is no love by the failure to even say something nice. To give a compliment. To reach down and help someone who is in distress or crying or hurt. That too belongs to kindness. Love, says the Holy Spirit, not only suffers long and is kind, but it envies not. This deserves some attention because this was, as the Spirit makes plain, a source of much trouble in Corinth. One of the things that was causing trouble was there was envy. The brother who had knowledge envied the brother who could speak in tongues and the brother who could speak in tongues envied the brother who had faith very very strong that he could move mountains that is do miracles we minimize this often when there is disturbance when there is trouble in the home when there is division in the church We minimize often the role that envy plays we ought not do that we should remember that the leaders of the Jews killed Jesus for one reason. Envy. Envy. They were green with envy. And it's not unheard of that there's individuals in the church who seem to show great love toward another. But if you could examine deep into the heart, you will find that they are green with envy over the gifts and abilities that an individual wants. Well, love envies not. Love rather delights in what the other has. One delights in the fact that God has given them lots of money. They delight in the fact that God has given them wonderful gifts and abilities. They delight in the fact that they are given a wonderful family in a wife. Given the position in the church. Doesn't envy that. Delights in that. <clears throat> Love vaunts not itself. It is not puffed up. Against a brother. These two clearly go together. Vaunt is boasting. To vaunt is outward boasting or bragging, we might say. To brag about one's gifts. To brag about one's abilities. Or to even brag about one's love. And the root of that, of course, is being puffed up. And Even the children here know what that means. We use those terms. Be puffed up. Be puffed up stick our neck out and crow like a rooster that is proud underneath bragging is pride where there is bragging there is pride where is vaunting it's oneself there is pride that too was a problem in corinth goes right along with envying along with envying goes then boasting over what i have In an attempt to make what I have be more important than what you have. These things go together. And let's realize that we should also emphasize this one because it's really the ultimate measure of love. Remember, we said love is selfless. There's one characteristic of love. There's one characteristic of all these behaviors. That is, it's selfless. And where would that show? Where would you expect that to show itself? Or what behavior would expose that one really does not love? And it's right here. If you have an individual that's vaunting himself, bragging, all he wants to do is let everybody see how good a person he is. He's always busy controlling the narrative to put a good spin on his life and his deeds and his works. Underlying that, the Spirit says, is pride. Pride. That person doesn't love. Or to put it another way, that person loves only himself. What's being described here is what clinically today is called a narcissist. A narcissist. Narcissist who loves is someone who loves only himself. That is his pride. He's proud. He's vaunted. He puffs himself up. So the Holy Spirit calls attention to this. Love doesn't brag and doesn't boast, doesn't show off, doesn't say, see what I got, look what I'm getting. Because underneath it is pride. And the person that's pride, proud cannot love another. Love does not behave itself unseemly toward the brother or sister in the church. Unseemly. That word unseemly is, has the idea of being ugly of being rude. It's describing something that if anybody looks at it, it's repulsive. They say that, ooh. Everybody recognizes it. It, And and it's hard to describe, but that's what it is. We have such things in life. The smell of a dead body is is simply repulsive to everybody. And that's what he's describing. When you see behavior where you go, ooh, that's ugly that's gross, that's harsh, that's not right, then generally, that's correct. There's no love behind it. And the idea furthermore is love is the opposite. Love is beautiful. Love is attractive. Love is lovely. So when you see an individual behaving toward another individual in thought, word, or deed, in their behavior, in their attitude, in the way they hold their face, and it's ugly, then you're talking about unseemly behavior. Love is not unseemly. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. Love seeks not her own. Again, love doesn't really care about itself. Now that doesn't mean we don't care for ourselves. Holy Spirit knows better. The Holy Spirit knows we need to care for ourselves, we need to eat, and we need to drink, and we need a certain amount of time for ourselves. We have our own calling and work to do. But the fact is, that's all really pushed to the side. If someone loves someone, if someone is showing love towards someone, then they're really not concerned about the effect of that upon themselves. They're not considering really their own time. They're not really considering their own expense. They're not considering that this is going to cost them in some way. That's the idea of seeks not her own. Love is concerned, first of all, with everyone else. Our problem is we are concerned always, first of all, with ourselves. And if we're always concerned with ourselves, then we Never love anyone else because there will never be enough time for ourselves. We, we never have enough. That's pride. That's selfish. Love seeks not her own. Love is not easily provoked. He's referring there to quickly taking offense. When someone says something, when someone holds their eyes a certain way, or their body a certain way, or someone walks by, one doesn't easily take offense at that. Doesn't interpret what they had to say in the wrong light. Doesn't imagine to themselves, well, they did that deliberately. They were trying to spite me. They were trying to hurt me. Look how rude they are. Look how seemly they are. No. Love is not easily provoked. And love also doesn't provoke to wrath. Love doesn't say things that pretend to be kindness and say things that pretend to be Expressions of love, but really, really have an edge to them, are meant to jab, make a little cut, inflict a little pain. No, love doesn't easily provoke either. Love thinks no evil against a brother. That means a couple of things. It means we don't plan to do evil. We don't sit there and plot a way to hurt and to harm the other in the church. Number two, it means we're not suspicious of others plotting evil against us either. See how that follows from not easily provoked? We're not sitting here wondering who's going to get me next? Who's going to stick the knife in my back next? Who's in line to get me? doesn't do that. And also, when a brother does evil, doesn't hold it against him. Doesn't return evil for evil or plot evil against that evil. But rather deals with the evil in the right biblical way. Lastly, love rejoices not in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. That right there belies the fact which is often used as an excuse, an excuse not to love, that love is not opposed to the truth, that where love is shown, the truth falls away. That doctrine becomes unimportant. That's often the excuse, you see, The excuse often is this, well, I have a right to be unkind. I have a right to think evil against my brother. All these things here that the Holy Spirit says, they don't apply. Why? Well, there's a doctrinal issue at stake. My brother, he believes something false. Or my brother has done something wrong. He's done something sinful. Well, that's not true. The idea of the apostle is that at all times and all places, this is how love behaves. And if we truly love the brother, even if he sins, and even if he were teaching false doctrine or believe false doctrine, it would do something about it, but it would do something about it in this way. Without vaunting, without puffing, without envy. It would be kind. It would not seek her own. It would not easily be provoked. It wouldn't think evil. And it doesn't Rejoice in iniquity. Love is not the overlooking of iniquity. It's not love when we find sin in the church and individuals living in the sin and we turn our face away and say, it doesn't matter. Love rejoices not in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. There's a second group we must move on, and that puts it in terms of things. And the idea is, it's meant to be all inclusive here. Not to focus now upon people as such, but situations. Love is put in the place of situations and circumstances. Obviously, they involve people. But then the Spirit says, love bears all things, it believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. What is it meant there? Well, in many ways, it's a reinforcement of what the Spirit says earlier. To bear all things means that you help the brother bear every burden. You help the sister bear every burden, every trouble, every work, every affliction. Everything that they experience, you bear. We bear all things together. No one person should ever have to bear anything themselves. Now we might say that, but love actually bears it. Love actually moves in and says, Let me help you hold that up. Let me let me help you. Let me find some way to ease your burden, to mitigate your pain. And all things. It doesn't say, Well, that's a trouble you got yourself into. It's your own fault. Stewing your own juices, sleeping your own bed. No. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. The idea there is believes the best about everyone. Isn't suspicious of this or that activity. Doesn't think the worst of this or that. Isn't running around saying, I think I see a problem here. Oh, this is about to break out. Not someone running around the church trying to fix everything that they think is a problem. Not someone who when they hear something said immediately thinks the worst of it. No, it believes all things. When I hear someone say something says, I, I believe that. Now again, of course, there are individuals who lie in the church, who continually lie, and then you're a fool if you believe them. But those are those are extreme cases. And God gives us ways of dealing with those. Even as an individual, we're not the one to call in there and say, Well, that's that's a lie. You're lying to me. You're not telling the truth. You're trying to hurt me, not without proof. Love hopes in all things. That is, it comforts the brother with a conviction that God will make all this work out for good. Sometimes that's all we can bring. Love moves in and love says, here, let me help restore your hope. I know things seem hopeless. I know that this situation seems a big, dark pit that you'll never climb out of. Let me bring you hope. Not now the hope necessarily you're going to get better. Not now the hope that there's some drug that may help you. Not hope now that while there's others that have gone through this and and certainly you're not alone, but the hope that God is at work. That God loves you. That God will certainly care for you. That God will make all this work for good. And it does that in all things. And hope endures all things. Anything the brother does that causes distress and harm, one puts up with, endures it. See how it expands on what he said further? It's not just some things, but all things. Everything that's done to us, whatever's said to us, whatever the situation is, love endures it. Love puts up with it. Love somehow makes a way. Now, the explanation of all this. One of the reasons that these things are minimized, one of the reasons that we ourselves can simply overlook a passage like this is our problem is we think this is natural. We think this is easily done. How easily we lift ourselves up and say, I'm doing that. I hope so-and-so hears this sermon, but I'm, I'm just fine. And the real problem is we don't understand how impossible this is. Do you understand what the Apostle telling us is our calling it's as impossible as keeping God's law perfectly now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean then it's all for naught this is what we are called to do and this is what indeed is done in the church this is the great work of God and what the Holy Spirit is pointing out is it requires a miracle now let's put some meat on that miracle what is the miracle how is it that the child of God can actually do this not perfectly you know that I know that but can desire to live this way and begin to live this way and is sanctified to live this way how is it? and there's only one answer because this is how God has dealt with me God has been kind to me God has been good to me God has put up with more sin against Him on my behalf, then I'll never know. Do you see now why the Spirit lays this upon us? Why the Spirit calls us, especially every member, to live this way with every other member? And the answer is because that is what God has done. That's what you confess He's done. And the Spirit says now, go live that way of love with one another Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word convicts, which convicts us of all our unloving, hateful deeds, for which we are sorry, and calls us with great, mighty power, drawing us to love one another as Thou hast loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.